Hello, welcome to Wind and Wave Surf Talk. Thanks for tuning in today. Uh, our guest uh, this afternoon is a good friend of ours, Chuck Patterson. Um, Chuck's going to talk to us about the larger than average season or larger than average year this year on Maui. In particular, his his days surfing at Jaws. And we talked to him about you know just the the preparation and logistics um, required for these guys to go out on a 50 foot day. You know what it's like the day before, getting everything ready, communicating with you know the, the larger team, making sure they have all the preparation and equipment in place um, to take advantage of of a, of a big day out at Jaws. Uh, it's really interesting just to hear about the intensity of what's required. Um, and the level of safety and level of success that these guys ultimately have when um, when they put their heads together and and go out on a big day like that. And then we shift gears a little bit. We talk about the uh, stand up paddle race world, uh, a little bit about um, about the kind of the status of that world today. Uh, our feelings towards the idea of the need for a single world tour or at least a single world champion, authoritative champion, um, just so that athletes have a clear sense of how they rank against one another, um, the need to pull in sponsors to help grow our sport, and the thought that sponsors really kind of want to get behind something that that does have um, an authoritative kind of world champion at the end of the year. So some interesting stuff there, very opportunistic times in terms of Hopefully, getting something like that rolling, and um, yeah, I think this is a. I think you'll enjoy this show. It's always fun getting together with Chuck. He's um, he's a great personality in the stand-up world. He's a real ambassador of our sport, and we really had fun having him on the call. So, hope you enjoy it. And thanks again for tuning in. How's it going today? How was good. The do- good. Uh, how, how was the doctor the, visit? Everything good. Yeah, the doctor visit was good. Um, you know, I did a bunch of stuff last night to kind of help with the swelling and all that, and that went down pretty solid. And, uh, you know, just uh, just go with the flow. But, yeah, much better. So how do you reduce the swelling for something like that? What do you have to do? Like, what did you do um, last I night? I had the basic. Uh, last night I did, like, a, a super, like, a bucket of scalding hot um, water with Epsom salt in it. And then um, I'd stick my foot in there for... Uh, what is it, about seven, eight minutes, and then switch it right to um, a big thing of ice um, wow. for another, you know, eight to ten minutes. And I do that. I did that for two hours. Oh my forth. god! And this is and and yeah, so and Chuck, got, this is for these are cuts on your foot that you got from from. Yeah, well, I have I have a, I have just one cut on my foot from um, surfing. Uh, like a week and a half ago here and you know being in and out of the water with the swell we apparently had some bad sewage or something <laughs> because we found, I'm finding all this out today you know that was you know, no one knew about and so a lot of people have gotten staph or or some kind of really? sinus infection so yeah so it's I'm on antibiotics doing that and then my um, I've got a really great doctor that uh, takes care of me with everything. Um, more of a back specialist muscle guy, and um, he just basically helped me, you know, flush out all the, uh, you know, um, every day I go to him, and he just flushes everything out for me. But being on my feet, you know, all day doesn't really help. So 
So those are the little steps you got to do on the side. Yeah, well, this is all par for the course when you're a professional athlete, right? You've got a personal relationship with your doctor who you probably go to see all the time, and then you get a little cut on your foot, and most people just tough it out. <laughs> Other people, though, who like need to be on their feet to support their living, you know, they uh, they take it to a whole nother level. So that's impressive, man. Nice job. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Awesome. So. Well, thanks for jo- thanks yeah. for uh, joining us today. I got Kevin and Jeff here. Hey, Chuck. What's and, happening? Uh, Very nice to see. Um, here, you guys. Same here. Same here, bud. And so, yeah. So, thank <laughs> you. So, this is our this is our podcast episode number three. Excited about kicking off this whole new service, and very flattered to have you on as our as our third interview guest. So, thanks for taking the time today to to jump on and talk with us. Um, What's an honor. And uh, obviously, we we've gotten we've had the pleasure of getting to know you a little bit better through a couple of fun little surf trips and your visit up to Vermont and and then uh, M2O last year in Hawaii. Um, but I thought it would just kind of start off for people who don't know you all that well and just kind of talk a little bit about kind of your background and how you because you have this very rare skill set where you're you know. And, and this word gets thrown around a lot, but this whole multi-dimensional athlete thing is something that I think you kind of really take to a whole new level. And so for people who really only know you or may, you know, only really know you as a water sport athlete, I think it'd be helpful just to give us a quick, quick bio of kind of, you know, where you grew up, where you spent your early sort of teenage years and what you were doing then, and then sort of how you got into uh, the wild, with the wild world of water sports. All right, yeah, I'll give you a, a little brief um, 90 mile an hour um, rewind. <laughs> uh, basically, I was very fortunate to grow up in a sporting um, household with uh, my mother being a, a ex pro ski racer from Austria, and then my dad was a nuclear physicist. So I kind of had the best of both worlds. So uh, sports and, um, you know, knowledgeable thinking about how to do things um, went hand in hand with, uh, you know, my two great parents. And then um, had an awesome sister to pretty much bounce things off of and compete with. And uh, started out skiing at two years old, um, in living in, born and raised in Northern California, and then moved to um, Munich, Germany to spend some of my early years there um, going to school. German was my first language and then uh, was skiing pretty much, you know, as much as possible and then moved back to the States where, you know, going to school in, in Berkeley um, as a young kid and then going up to the mountains pretty much, uh, gosh, three days a week, all winter long. And uh, skiing was pretty much, uh, you know, one of my main sports. And then from there, my mother was also a pro windsurfer. So I followed in her footsteps uh, with the winter and summer thing, you know, doing the snow and water. And then I think my love and, um, you know, my life kind of opened up to so much more. So having skiing as a foundation kind of made it really easy to learn anything, anything and everything else after that. So going from that to windsurfing, got into surfing when I was 13, um, and then found out that uh, I actually really liked competing, doing the uh, windsurfing thing and the skiing thing. Uh, in my, you know, teen years and figured out how to make money and, um, you know, through sponsors and competition. And I kind of set myself up 
to kind of explore other sports at the same time, and I was super lucky to uh, be at the right time, right place when uh, sports, you know, new sports were evolving, like wakeboarding, you know, kiteboarding, and then obviously, you know, with the uh, stand-up paddling, uh, it's it's all been a, a really cool kind of a roller coaster evolution of uh, sports and and how I kind of blended my life with it and uh, and then here we are today you know and and I still go back and do pretty much all the sports that I grew up doing a um, lot more knowledgeable a uh, lot less flexible <laughs> uh, easier to make e- easier to have uh, you know make more um, you know mistakes to where you know going to the doctor more doctor visits as fun when you're <laughs> yeah so i'm trying to keep that down but uh but no it's it's been great so i've i've basically gone from the snow mountain you know lifestyle from skiing and snowboarding to you know big wave surfing stand up kiteboarding and windsurfing um and uh i've you know worked hard to try to you know keep that lifestyle going and and it's been a very healthy active lifestyle that's uh kept me going and i'm still smiling <laughs> yeah, and you you have a dynamite smile, Chuck. Everyone knows that, right? Um, hey, uh, so another question I have for you is: so in those early days, I know that you you started off really do, kite surfing when kite surfing was just getting started, and that was kind of one of those early sports, you know, where literally just being invented. And I know um, I know you develop uh, a great, really tight relationship with the Baxter family in Hawaii. So how did all of that happen? How did you, how did you find out about, how did you get interested in kiting? And then, and then how did you meet the Baxters? Well, for me, I ended up, um, kind of creating a cool thing. Like when I was skiing professionally and all that, um, I would ski pretty much a good seven months of the year. And then, you know, obviously work as a bartender whatnot, and then travel to Maui for two to three months in the fall before the snow started falling so I could have a great base layer of training and being in the tropics and then once the snow hit I'd come back home to Tahoe. Um, But in doing so I made a lot of great friends in Maui being such a sport style um, you know island uh, with windsurfing, kiting and everything that um, that's where I first saw kiteboarding for the first time and Maui seems to be one of those places that uh, um, it's, it's kind of a test testing ground for any crazy idea, sport, whatever you may call it, um, place with some incredible athletes. And, uh, you know, I've got to see, you know, the evolution of, uh, kiteboarding with, uh, a lot of young guys and, and a couple older guys like Robbie and Robbie Nash and, and, um, watch that grow at the same time I was pretty you know, interested in it. And so I went back to California and was like, I got to get this figured out. First, I thought it was kind of a joke. And then I was like, you know what, it's actually really hard, but extremely challenging. And I loved it. So it replaced windsurfing for me. So the Baxter family had an awesome store in Maui. And uh, they, you know, specialize in kiteboarding and, and windsurfing and stuff. And uh, so I went to them to get the first Whippaca kite which was pretty much the first kite on the market. Right, right. And developed a great relationship with them. They were like my, my Hawaii family. And, um, you know, got to watch Connor Baxter grow and Ashley, you know, his sister, and um, when they're like two, three years old. Wow. And um, just, it ended up just morphing into an awesome 
family that really supported me. They ended up being one of my big sponsors and, um, you know, really taught me a lot about, uh, you know, getting the most out of Maui and, and enjoying, you know, that lifestyle while working really hard at, at all these different sports. So, uh, it was an awesome thing that, uh, it's still going on today. I mean, to this day, I spend a lot of time with the Baxter family, you know, going to Jaws, you know, in, in the boat and, uh, spending time with Connor and Ashley on the water, um, you know, pretty much as much as possible when I'm there. So, uh, it's cool to have a support group like that when you're doing new sports, especially away from home. And, and now Maui is, is definitely, you know, my, my home away from home. Right. And those guys are obviously such a strong Maui family and, and particularly, you know, it's interesting how you talk about how Maui is kind of this, um, it's kind of the sandbox for all these new sports, right? And, and most recently, we were watching these guys, you know, downwind foil boarding, you know, coming out of Maui, which is pretty, exactly. pretty incredible. Um, but yeah. it, but being, you know, being sort of uh, this place that's so open to innovative ideas um, makes it obviously really dynamic. And then, and then all of a sudden, you know, a few years ago, they find this enormous, beautiful wave called Piahi, right, right on the North Shore in Maui, and um, mm-hmm. and, and obviously that's a place where you spend a lot of time with the Baxters and and obviously a lot of other big wave paddle surfers and surfers, and and in particular this winter, right? So this winter was the El Nino season. Um, we just recently got a, the new issue Stand Up Journal, and it looks like you got a lot of ink in that journal in that in that issue. So congratulations. That's great. But they had an amazing year there this year. And um, I know you've been over there um, every year uh, uh, for, for various storms, for big storms. And, and this year, obviously, there were there were a few more than, than average. Um, and then and there were a couple of real big ones, a couple of real big days over there. Yeah. Um, so so for us who who've, who could never, ever imagine even being out in the lineup on a 50 to 70 foot day. Um, I mean, what, what's that like? Like when you, when you, when you see a forecast like that coming across the internet or however you guys scout that, and then, you know, it's the night before in the morning of like, what's, what happens? Like, what is the preparation? What do you guys do to get ready for that? Both like mentally, physically, in terms of equipment and just coordinating, you know, getting out there and having everything you need once you're out there. I mean, how does all that work? Well, you know what? It's, um, yeah, this winter was truly um, a historical winter for us in Maui. Um, and, you know, Maui is uh, is a magnet for, you know, when we get these big winter storms and stuff and Jaws being kind of our epicenter for big wave surfing and stand-up and, 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 and wind surfing and kiting as well. Um, so, you know, we're always, winter time is pretty much the time to be there. I spend a good five, six months there during the winter off and on, and um, it's all dependent on the swell. Um, if it's flat, I'm off trying to do ski stuff or other projects. Um, but this winter, I spent a lot of time, you know, on Maui, and um, it all starts out with, you know, the minute there's any swell in the window, um, you know, we're always watching the internet and it's obviously been a game changer for chasing big waves or just getting the best conditions at your, at your local spot. Yeah. And, um, the minute something hits the window, of you know, large size when we're talking, you know, 40 to, to 60 mile an hour winds, 
you know, way out by Japan and shooting our direction. Um, you know, you become a, um, you know, almost like you're a weatherman in a way because you start to kind of, you know, see, well, you start to forecast it to yourself going, okay, well, this, you know, continues to have this band of, of strength all the way through and dips down our way. We're going to basically catch waves probably in the 50 to 60 foot range. And, and uh, it, it's pretty cool. So when that happens, the island is so small that it, it turns the island into a full frenzy. Uh, there's so much talented, you know, athletes and especially the young kids like, you know, Connor and Kai Lenny and, and the Cody Kerbox and all these young, great rippers that are all just on fire and frothing to, you know, kind of push themselves for the next, next big swell. So everybody starts to go off and it'll be a week before the, before the uh, swell comes and you can see guys, you know, cruising around with their jet skis, get everything gassed up, making sure that, you know, you have all your equipment dialed and ready to go for that, that one big day or a series of days. If it's that big. And, uh, so once we get, you know, everything rolling, then it's all about having a solid support crew, um, you know, when we, when we do go to JAWS. And, and, and through the years, um, it's become even more important, especially with paddle surfing becoming, you know, so big now that guys are trying to push the paddle surfing and the stand-up paddle surfing in the biggest waves possible. We haven't even seen, you know, the limit yet. And this year, we definitely broke that bridge. Uh, seeing a wow. couple 70 foot waves getting ridden. And so having a strong support crew, you know, with uh, the Baxters, especially we have a couple jet skis that we all get ready and, and, you know, have for that day. Um, and then Keith has a, an awesome big boat where we throw all our boards, um, you know, on there. And, and there's a lot of logistics that come together. So after having your jet ski dialed and the rescue sled, everything gassed up, ready to go, making sure that your radios work and um, that you're ready for any gnarly scenario that you can handle. Um, and then it's all about setting up the uh, support boat. And um, that to us is really makes it possible for us to do anything when we get up there. Um, you know, in case it gets windy, then we have our kite gear, our windsurf gear, or if it's too big to paddle, then we have our tow surfboards or um, we just have a variety of boards in case we break stuff, which happens pretty much daily when it's big. And um, so we'll pretty much go together, get everything ready the night before, um, and you're on the phone all day long making sure everything's set and ready and, and you pretty much pack the boat up. And then we'll crack it early. You're always looking at the buoys, and uh, we'll crack it early and go down to Kalui Harbor, which is about eight miles from Jaws, um, and the reason we go down there is because it's an easy put-in for the big boats and the jet skis, and it gives us time to kind of have everybody together and, and coordinate and put everything, you know, into play, and then we leave that safe harbor, and then suddenly you're going out <laughs> to sea to go around all the reefs, and you're going out a couple miles to make sure that you don't get hit by waves, and then a lot of us will take our jet skis, um, but we'll you know, go through the surf on the inside because it's a lot more fun and a little easier to do that with the jet ski. And we end up all making that journey. It's about 30 to 45 minute journey, depending on how big or, or how the surf conditions are, um, up to Jaws. And the area where you pass Hukipa and, and you're going up the coast and you're just watching the backs of waves explode and big, you know, white water and, and um, 
spray and, and, you know, the anticipation, you got the adrenaline going. And when you're on the jet ski, you're driving through all the surf and you're like, wow, it's going to be giant. And, you know, you haven't even gotten there yet. And then you come around the point, there's a point just past Maliko where it kind of jets out with a bunch of rocks and always has giant surf. As you pass that, um, you kind of, the, the coastline kind of bends in a little bit and then you can see jaws which is only a mile away and you can see you know 60 to 80 foot plumes of you know spray off the back of the waves um and you just see this a-frame breaking and you're just like oh my gosh it's giant and um you know then you end up going as fast as you can with the jet ski you know like just to get there so you can see it because you're just like you know just blown away how, how big it is and and it's confirmed you know what you've seen seen on the buoys and so we all get up there and, you know, you've got the jet ski guys and, and we're cruising around just making sure, you know, what everything looks like, go, go to the left side and watch how the wave peels that way. And, and just, you know, you're so much, much more agile and, and able to kind of, you know, go in and out of the surf with the jet ski versus the big boat. So, you know, we'll do everything, do our homework there, kind of checking everything out. And then we'll go back to the boat and go, okay, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to grab my, you know, my, 10-8 stand up and paddle and then I'll throw a photographer on my jet ski or one of the other athletes and um, then we have a setup kind of a protocol where we have one jet ski that covers two to three athletes um, so if and when anything goes down that person goes in to go rescue or at least assist in a rescue to make sure that um, our crew comes back safely and that's mandatory I mean we we do everything we can and it's really been something in the last four years that has come together that all top athletes especially the local guys um, have put together and it's just made it a lot safer and good to know that when you're out there you have that confidence knowing that if and when something does go down there's going to be at least one to three jet skis coming to grab you um, and um, you know to, to make it out safe so not saying that's the only thing we rely on. I mean, we all train super hard in the gym and doing beach training and swimming and, and, and surf stuff to, to ensure that when that jet ski's not there, we can still handle it. But it's nice to have that all set up, um, you know, beforehand. And then once, I mean, it sounds like so much, so much logistics, which it truly is, but once you're there, um, you know, your adrenaline's going, there's so much that goes into just getting there. And then when you get there, you have to almost reset and slow it down a little bit and go, okay, I need to watch a couple waves and don't get too over eager and go, okay, I'm jump, jumping straight out there. Um, uh, because you don't want to get mowed down the first day or I mean the first hour. And then suddenly that'll be the rest of your day. You know, you're like, okay, I'm sitting on the boat because, uh, you know, I had a close call or whatever. So you learn to kind of slow things down and go at your own pace and, um, and, you know, see, you know, how it is and, and go, you know, slowly. And, and for me, I'm always kind of, I take a little more time cause I'm a lot older than the, the young guys and, and I'll kind of watch everything. So I'm always doing water safety at first. And then, uh, one guy will come in and then we'll switch and, and Jamie Mitchell and I uh, spend a lot of time together. Um, we have a ski together. And so, it's uh, it's pretty rad. We'll just kind of go, okay, hey, I'm going to go out for an hour and uh, do my thing. You got my back. And then I'll go in and, um, you know, Jamie will be tired and then grab a sandwich and then he'll switch and get on the jet ski and then I'll go out and, and go and surf and, and do the same. So it, it's pretty awesome. And then when you're out there, we're pretty much set to be, 
on the water for pretty much eight to 12 hours. I mean, we're, we're there till from sunup to sundown. Um, I mean, we get the most out of it. Um, and you, a lot of times in that 12 hours, depending on if it's giant, whatever, you may only get, you know, three to eight really good waves, which is kind of a high mark as far as memorable waves without any incident. Um, and usually it's, you get maybe one to two really good waves with a pretty gnarly incident. And then you're like, okay, I'm going to take a break and, uh, you guys surf for a couple hours. So, you know, it's, uh, it, it's definitely, <laughs> uh, pretty exciting. And, um, you know, it, it takes a lot to get it going, but it's so well worth it. You know, once you've, you know, gotten everything together and, and then all you have to think about is surfing and, um, that's a whole nother ball game. <laughs> <laughs> I got it. Well, I got to say, I mean, it, it's got to be one of the most impressive things to see, you know, and I don't care if you surf or don't surf, but there's, um, it's hard to draw a parallel between the athleticism, the commitment, the courage. I mean, everything that goes into a day like that, where nature is literally in, in, in such a different scale between like, you know, human and natural scale, but the scale of this is just disproportional. It's, it's so different than anything else than any other sport. And, and obviously we're dealing with, with waves that are going to be different all the time. You got sets coming in. Some sets are going to be bigger than others. You've got these kind of lull periods where everyone's waiting. You don't know what's going to happen. You get almost kind of lulled into maybe being a little bit more confident than you should be and forgetting to be humble or, or what, or, and maybe the swells on the increase and maybe it's just getting bigger throughout the day, you know? Um, but that, and, and it's, it's interesting to hear kind of, you know, the realistic wave count and the expectation you guys have when you go out for 12 hours in a day to say, Hey, if we get a handful of good ones, then we've actually done really, really well, because obviously in those conditions, you have to be highly selective. You, know, you got to be really careful about which waves you're taking. And, you know, the way you just described that, it almost sounded like you guys were out there by yourselves, which we all know you're not. So now you're, yeah. you've, you've got yeah. uh, you've got chaos and traffic from multiple skis, multiple boats, and all of these people basically um, consent, coming landing on one spot, right? They're all going to this one place, mm -hmm. and they all saw the same forecast. They saw the same, same winds coming off Japan and and everyone's headed to the same exact place. So it, it's got to be chaotic. And then you've got photographers and helicopters that are flying overhead. And the whole, the whole thing's got to be intense. So uh, the one question is, I mean, at, at, at some point, do you, because do I know there's, as you said, there's a lot of planning that goes into this. But at some point, do you, do you finally kind of relax and have fun? Um, or is it is it literally just adrenaline and high intensity for that? For virtually that whole time well i think you know i mean it's I, this year i got 20 about 22 days there which was astronomical i mean like I, usually it's it was pretty pretty much used to be three to five days were like you know like unheard of you know and and now with the swell and and everybody going out on every day that it breaks um, you know, and this year was a, a incredible year. So we had a lots of surf and, you know, every, a lot of waves, um, sessions that were over 50 feet solid. And, um, 
So, you know, when you get out there, like you said, um, yeah, we're not there by ourselves. I mean, we come out, we'll be probably one of the first boats and jet skis there. And then within the hour to hour and a half, suddenly you're looking at, it was maybe just, you know, five, six guys out in the water. And then suddenly on a big day, it'll turn into 30 to 50 guys in the water. And um, a lot of those guys, maybe... 40% will be the local guys, and then the rest will be people from either California, uh, the other Hawaiian Islands, um, you know, East Coast, whatever, that come out to surf it for the day or, you know, have the same intention in mind. So um, there's a lot to think about. Like you said, we have helicopters, photographers, you've got drones, um, you've got jet ski guys with camera guys on the back. Um, it's a circus. I mean, it's, you look at it and go, wow, the, back in the days when we used to tow, even with Laird and it'd be just three jet skis out and we're just like, oh, you want this one? Go for it. Well, that has changed now. So everybody comes there knowing that it's an arena to get your photo taken, whatever. And they go out there with the intention of like, I'm going to get away whether I'm ready or not. And, um, you know, some people go out there with that attitude and, and get spanked pretty hard just in hopes to get a shot, which is, you know, yeah. sometimes not the greatest approach because we put so much time into training. I, I want to, I train to basically for survival to make sure I can do it again. Yeah. I love getting my photos taken and we love to get great video, but it's really a, a personal challenge of like, Hey, how far can we take our own personal challenge in riding big waves, especially at jaws. And every day at jaws is a different day. I mean, it's never the same. The swell direction changes. Um, you know, when it comes out of the west, it's pretty much, in my mind, one of the more dangerous um, swell directions because we love to surf the right. The left ends up reeling, you know, super long and, you know, because the west kind of just floats by. But the right becomes this giant horseshoe and um, turns into a big barrel. But at the same time, majority of, you know, 50, 60% of the rides on, you know, on the big sets end up closing out and that's where you see some of the worst wipeouts and the worst injuries and crashes. So um, you're kind of somewhat of a meteorologist going, okay, well, we got this direction a little more out of the north this year. We had a lot more north, northwest, which was pretty proper and you could sit way at the top and uh, pick either a right or a left and it kind of opened the playing field a little bit. With a west swell, it kind of makes everybody cluster together and you start to push each other a little too deep. And suddenly you got three guys going for a wave and the two guys on the deepest section get annihilated. And maybe the one guy on the, on the shoulder ends up getting the better part of it. So there's a lot of jockeying around. Um, I'd like to say that, you know, in the middle of the day, you get relaxed for me. Um, it's pretty much full bore excitement, adrenaline going pretty much all day until you're driving home, you know, on the jet ski or on the boat. I mean, uh, that's when you're like, okay, I can relax now. Um, because it just seems even after a session and you're having a sando and you're taking it easy, you know that you're going to probably go back out again. And, you know, you're also feeling for the guys that are out there. You maybe watch a guy take a beating on the set. And it's a real close community. So everybody's like, you know, you're always watching over people and making sure that everybody's safe because, you know, we don't want anyone to pass away there over, you know, a stupid mistake. So you're in it the whole day and your adrenaline's always going i think for the guys that are comfortable um you know they 
that's a special breed and and i'm sure they're a lot younger because uh, <laughs> me being older and wiser i know better that things can change at a snap of a finger and especially at jaws you know you have a incoming swell it only gets bigger and bigger and suddenly you have these you know these waves that come rogue waves that come out of nowhere and it's supposed to only be 50 foot and suddenly you have an oddball 70 foot set that comes through and smokes everybody and almost takes boats out and we've seen it it's happened and and it's one of those things where you can never be comfortable just sitting in the lineup. I'm always tense. I'm always moving around. There'll be times where you're waiting for sets and, you know, um, if it's consistent and we don't get a wave for, you know, a good size set for 45 minutes, then you tend to relax a little bit, but then it also catches you off guard when a big rogue wave does come and we're all inside chit chatting. So, um, it's pretty amazing. It's one of the most coolest, things I've done in my age, um, you know, that's pretty much at the precipice of, of life, you know, threatening if you're, if you're not on top of your game, but uh, at the same time, it's probably one of the most rewarding ways of seeing mother nature really, um, you know, push something incredible, um, you know, in the ocean. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, obviously, um, what, so in, in, you, you, you talked about bringing a lot of gear out there with you and obviously being prepared for whatever it is you guys may ride, whether it's stand-up, whether it's um, prone surfing, kiting, whatever. Um, does, does anybody, does any, what, whatever happened to the, the popularity around toe surfing out there? And, and in the stand-up world, like when you, so when, you saw, when you're committed to going up and stand-up paddle surfing at JAWS, what are you paddling on? What are you going out on? Like what size equipment are, are you on? And, and what do you have on the boat? And sort of what do you pick? And how, how do you make that decision between going with one stand-up paddleboard versus another? All good questions. Um, I mean, at, at the beginning, the whole thing with toe surfing, I mean, that was my first uh, introduction was I was – you know, big into windsurfing, and I loved wave sailing, although I wasn't really a freestyle guy, so I got to go up to Jaws and check it out for the first time just in a boat and was blown away at literally it was like surfing a mountain, and that's what it is. And so toe surfing really became, you know, the only way, at least in our heads, to surf that place when it was giant. And so we toe surfed it probably from the, you know, early to mid-90s all the way through – God, 2006 to, or yeah, 2006 to 2008, um, you know, with giant waves and, and incredible rides, but that's the only thing that we, you know, kind of looked at as, as the best way to ride that place. And it was extremely fun to be on a, a little 6.0, you know, uh, tow board, uh, riding 60 to 70 foot waves, you know, like, like a little Grom, you know, I mean, it was, it was awesome. But now, with, um, you know, in the last, I'd say, six years, big wave surfing, we didn't have any of these big winners like we did today. I mean, I mean, this year. So we were seeing maybe 20 to 25 foot jaws, which was like, you know, 40 to 50, you know, maybe 55 foot um, swells coming through, which made it perfect for guys to kind of experiment with the surfboard, you know, and to just do the prone paddling. And once that happened, um, it became pretty much like the in thing and toe surfing got shelved 
you know, on the shelf basically said, all right, you know what, if there's guys paddling, there's going to be no toe surfing. And mo most of the guys, that, the new generation, the young kids like Kai Lanny and Albie Lair and, and Connor and all these guys were, you know, all about paddle surfing. And so toe surfing was pretty much non-existent, you know. And so we used the jet skis only as water safety in case, you know, one of the guys got in trouble. But that was it. And the more it happened, you know, with these big swells coming by and, and the surfers starting to get into it, but then kind of reaching the limit where you saw plenty of big waves go by with no one riding it because they just didn't want to push it. That's when we were like, okay, this would be a perfect day to be toe surfing. And, um, but, but we still had guys in the lineup. So the rule was basically you've got a couple guys, you know, paddle surfing. There's no reason to have a jet ski out there. And so we all, kind of stuck it out and said, okay, we're going to all respect that. But then this year was the first year where we had so many days at Jaws and finally, you know, had these giant days where honestly we all kind of, you know, put our heads together and said, you know what, this is a perfect day to tow because we're <laughs> going to let 70% of the waves go by if we're stand-up paddling or paddle surfing. And we all want to have fun. And um, it was the first time where I saw even the young kids going, you know what, let's grab a rope, let's tow. And um, we had three, probably one of the most epic sessions this year in solid, you name it, from 50 to solid 70-foot surf. And you saw the biggest smiles on everybody's faces because we hadn't done it in probably a good five to seven years, you know, having that much fun out there on the shortboard. So um, the tow surfing thing, I'd have to say it has its place, but um, this year was the first year where I think everybody was stoked to kind of get back into it. But I think paddle surfing and stand-up is really, um, you know, is, people are going to push that for a long time, including myself, until I get pretty banged up, you know. And, um, and so toe surfing will always be that next thing once, you know, we can't get any waves. And then to answer your question in regards to when it's big and I go out there, what I choose, I mean, for me, I spend a lot of time on the stand-up, a lot more than I do surf nowadays. So for me, uh, my go-to board is a 10-8 Hakua Nash board, and, and Robbie has done a lot of great input on that, and he rides that a lot. And for me, it's the one board that floats me well and has, a, you know, I'm confident in, and I can get into the wave, and um, I'm confident, in, you know, as a quad fin that I can basically make sections and get out of there and still be safe, versus... Kyleni being, you know, um, like around 165, um, he's a lot smaller than me. So he rides, I think, something like a 9.2 a or a 9.0. And, um, you know, it, it's, it's a different ball game. I mean, for him, it's like shortboarding. He's getting barreled and this and that. And I occasionally get barreled, but I take a lot of beatings with it as well. So, um, <laughs> but that's half the fun. And, and uh, for me, it's, you know, I'll pick the stand-up first, and then when it comes to the, if there's a ton of guys paddle surfing and I don't feel like, you know, I don't want to deal with the jockeying around on my stand-up, I'll go out and surf. But more than likely, um, it's a tight pecking order, so I've been there for many years, put my time in, so I utilize that and go, you know what, I'm going to stand up. And there's not many opportunities for just anyone to go there and stand up it's like you got to kind of put your time in so i think going in and and surfing and, and grabbing a couple waves and kind of showing respect that yeah hey i surfed a couple waves now i'm going to try my bit at stand up is the best way to go and, and it shows respect to the locals and everyone there and by all means we don't want to turn this into 
hey, every guy in a stand-up should come out and, and right. infiltrate the break. It's it's all about your skill level and um, and showing respect. And you got to surf some waves there first and get your groundwork in and make sure that you kind of prove yourself a little bit to the guys that are there. Right. And then go out on your stand-up and, and do the same thing. You don't want to go out there and kook it or cause harm to someone by accident and then suddenly you're kind of banned from that place for life you know so it's it's a it's a fragile place but you know your skill set and it's all about baby steps there's so many other reefs to go to that have big waves before you go to that arena because the cliffs are lined with um a ton of photographers hundreds if not thousands of of visitors that you know tourists that are watching so you do something dumb there, it's magnified. <laughs> and in social media, social media today, um, we all know how that works. It uh, can become a, you know, an avalanche um, that uh, is either a good thing for you getting a good wave, or one that will spank you pretty heavy for doing kind of a, a dumb mistake. <laughs> well, I, I I like the idea that it's you're, you're there's a obviously a respect that goes into being there, and I think that it's kind of an earned thing, and you kind of have to go in kind of quietly, and you got to earn your place. So I think that that's actually a great way. It's a great environment, you know. That's the, the that's the ideal sort of way to set up that relationship and just make sure that everyone's out there for the right reasons and that they all have respect for one another. Nobody feels threatened or or put in a dangerous situation because somebody's out there who shouldn't be. And and that's probably because of the elevated sort of threats, the elevated danger of being in that kind of environment. I mean, everybody, there's no, there's no messing around, you know, there's no egos. There's no, there's no, nobody's out there who shouldn't be out there. You know, I think it's, I think it's, it's sure. judged, it's judged based on the merits of who's there. Um, if you have no business being out there, then you're not, there's no way you're going to be out there. So I, I, I think that's, yeah. And that's a great way to have it set up. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and I mean, there's times, don't get me wrong, where we all, no matter how long you've been there or how much of a pro you are or whatever, we all have those days or a time where you pick the wrong wave and you take a beating like no other and, and you get humbled really quickly. And I think that's the cool thing about surfing big waves um, is that the lineup um, regulates Mother Nature is always the one that has the upper hand. So um, <laughs> if, you, if you understand that and respect it, then it makes sense. And you come home, you know, with a smile on your face. If you have too much attitude or just, um, you know, not humble at all, uh, Mother Nature will quickly correct that, which uh, is, I think, a, a kind of a cool environment and uh, a great life lesson as well. Oh, yeah, definitely. No, judge, judge and jury for sure. Yeah. Judge and jury. Um, I got So I'm going to, I got another topic I want to cover. So I'm going to shift gears a little bit, but um, yeah. uh, the other night I was watching, um, I was watching some of the PPG over again, because it's, it's actually really nice to have, nice to have all that footage, you know, still online and be able to go through and watch the, the elite race for both the men and the women, um, the distance race, and then obviously the technical race, which were both great. And, um, just want to say you and Jamie did an awesome job commentating, um, you know, specifically the, the men's distance race, which was a lot of fun to see. And it must have been fun for you, obviously, having been, you know, one of the one of the former Battle of the Paddle champions. Um, but but one of the things about watching PBG this year, which was interesting to me, was just the um, 
you know, obviously being able to stream those events brings the spectators into the sport in the best way possible, which is, which is obviously good for all of us. And it just, and then, you know, in the case of the technical race, you know, kind of in and out of the surf and with all the buoy turns and just the dynamics of set waves coming through. And, you know, sometimes like in the case of, of, of Mo this year, he was able to actually, you know, really stretch his lead in the technical race due to a, a lot of hard work, a lot of good equipment and, and, and some good fortune in terms of just like some bumps that he was able to catch that other guys weren't. And all of a sudden he's stretching his lead. And so anyway, being someone like yourself, who's really seen, seen like the beginnings of stand-up paddle racing up until most recently, actually commentating, you know, one of the, the, the biggest races of the year. Um, where, do, where do you see stand-up paddle racing heading? And where do you think, you know, where do you think we can do things well? Or where are the areas where we can improve things? Where are the areas where we, where things are starting to soften or either paddle racers are becoming kind of bored or indifferent, or is there a challenge, you know, to keep things kind of exciting for spectators, exciting for paddle racers, um, exciting in terms of like, of laying out a course, um, you know, where do you think things are headed? I mean, you know, stand-up is definitely, you know, it's been around now for a good, let's say, eight, ten years now. But really we've seen the most change and, and evolution, I think, in the last five, six years. Um, and you know what? It's um, it's awesome to see. I, I think we've seen uh, things change from the older, experienced guys being, you know, back in the day, stand-up, you know, was somewhat expensive. And it was one of those things where it's, it's – uh, more for the older generation because they can afford it. Um, well, the kids got into it and really helped the sport evolve. And now we're looking at these kids that uh, back in the day were, you know, 11, 12 years old, and now they're, you know, 20, and they're pretty much spanking everybody and really pushing, you know, racing to a whole new level, which is really, I think, helped the sport evolve. Um, racing back then, you know, was all about, you know, you have a couple buoy courses or it was long distance from point A to B and then B back to A, um, where the racers would be gone for a good hour. Um, and so as far as the participation from the audience, there was none because who wants to sit there on the beach and, and, you know, just be at the beach and then suddenly, you know, watch the people come back in. And so I think we're, we're seeing a lot more um, newer stuff that's built more for TV I think, and that's kind of way, the way we have to look at it if we want to get bigger dollars and bigger sponsors to um, really kind of help the sport grow a little bit more, is racing needs to be fun, but we also need to, to help the audience participate and be part of the lifestyle because that's what really feeds into this great sport, uh, helps us sell boards. And so I think something like the PPG that we had and also, you know, we got to thank Sparky for, you know, having the rainbow battle paddle. Um, where he had that idea of bringing all the board companies together, all the pros, you know, it was kind of like our hidden uh, world, you know, championship and having everybody there and where you could watch the excitement in, in somewhat of a natural arena. And, um, and the PPG now is kind of the new next thing. And, and they've taken what, uh, you know, what was in the past and have made it a little bit better. And now having the, um, you know, the social media 
and the TV outlets and, and, and helping, you know, like guys like Jamie and myself and several others really kind of help narrate, you know, what the young kids are doing because we've been there and help the audience understand how exciting it is. I think for me, it kind of goes to like what the WSL, the, you know, uh, World Surfing League has done where such a great job is really kind of educate and help create an exciting environment for people to be glued to the screen, you know, whether they're in Europe and Australia and we have the event in California and um, having it be something like where we're going in and out of waves, trying to jockey for position, you know, against a hundred guys and you're dealing with mother nature's, you know, ever changing conditions in the surf. And there's a lot to deal with technique. There's a lot to deal with, um, you know, it, it takes a lot of uh, strategy. And at the same time, there's a lot that has to be said with uh, being lucky and looking at Mo. Um, all the top 20 to 30 guys could have been first. Um, you know, it's just uh, who got out there, who was best positioned, you know, who, who put it all together. And then suddenly you get the, that lucky timing with the surf. And we truly saw how Mo really just took it upon himself and made sure he was at every buoy turn. And then suddenly he had the luck of these sets coming in and he separated the gap. I mean, you know, by a couple hundred yards at the, at the end of his finish. And I think that was a nail biter for a lot of people. And even for Jamie and myself, you know, doing the commentary watching, I mean, we were so excited because you could never really um, dictate who was going to be first or who was in the top 10. You knew, the top players, but uh, when it comes to something like that, when you deal with waves and different conditions and um, you just don't know what's going to happen, I think that's the type of event that keeps people drawn to it. And the sport, I mean, you know, you know, just as well, you know, having, you know, uh, been in the sport, um, you know, with your, your great stores and, and um, you know, doing a lot in Vermont, um, a lot of people love it. It's a healthy sport. And so when you have a race where people can enjoy that aren't in the sport, but it invites them to be part of it and see how exciting it is and how much fun it is, yet it's just as easy for them to give it a try. I think that's, that's what it's all about. And I think seeing, you know, events like this and, and more kind of embrace bringing more people that aren't in the sports, like more, um, you know, athletes, endurance athletes, um, triathletes, you know, swimmers, um, you know, people from, you know, skiers, people from all different sports to come in and see how exciting this is and give their shot at racing because uh, we're all competitive. So I think if you make an event where it's exciting, it's always changing, you never dictate like, oh, we're going to go do a left turn here, right turn here. I think it's all about making it challenging for the racer and to where it's always different and to have the audience be able to see, hey, I wonder how these guys are going to react to this next course change or, or the surf just came up. It's five, six feet. They've got 14 foot boards. This is going to be exciting. <laughs> I mean, we can't, we can't forget how much fun it is to watch people get annihilated. By <laughs> I mean, it's like carnage. It's, it's, I mean, let's, let's put it all together. I mean, we love it when we're watching a car race and you know, God forbid anyone gets hurt, but, when there's a wreck, it's like you're glued to, you know, glued to the TV. Just the just same with like a football game where, you know, there's a big, you know, smash up or whatever. I mean, it's a, 
it's it's exciting and the same thing with big wave surfing when the guy's always making barrels it's like okay you can yawn and go wow i've seen it now six times and then once that guy gets annihilated and lit up you're like wow that's that's humanly not possible and it comes popping up and you're like that was cool i'd rather watch that six times versus the guy getting making the wave every time so right right um i think in racing, it's cool to have that because it gives everybody a fair shot of you could be a little guy or a big guy or maybe not the strongest sprint paddler, but you're good at riding waves. And I think having an environment like that where you can make it fun and exciting to where it takes some of the stress off of just like, yeah, we're going to go hammer 18 miles today. Man, I don't want to right. be in that draft train for two hours, but I guess this is what it's all about. And I honestly have to say for myself, being a racer for, you know, majority of the time, um, I'm completely burnt out on that. I, I, that's why I like the downwind paddling and the downwind racing, because it's, it's never a perfect course. It's, uh, you're dealing with Mother Nature, and you've got to, uh, you know, figure out what the waves are doing and what the wind is doing. So you're doing a lot more besides just the training part. It right. has a lot to do with technique and um, how you react to it and, um, you know, uh, the risk management you take um, in hand when you're, you know, doing a risk to get ahead of your opponent. So, I mean, I think having events like that that are always changing um, and granted we can't have events in the surf all the time, but, but even have a flat water race where you add like an obstacle course, um, you know, in the middle of it and uh, where you change it up. So you give the endurance athlete an opportunity to basically be right neck and neck with the top sprint paddler, you know? And, and I think that's, we see all the different events now, the endurance racing and, you know, the Spartan race and, you know, Ninja Warrior, all these really fun things where the average person goes out and competes and, um, against themselves. Um, if you added that in the mix with racing, I think um, we're, you know, we're looking at longevity in uh, bringing more money to the sport and helping the sport grow to even more um, consumers, you know, around the world. Yeah. And so, and to that point, so, and, and that's a great, that's a great point because obviously, you know, one of the things that board companies are trying to do and companies who are hosting events are trying to do is we're, we're all working towards trying to build more awareness around the sport. Because I, I do think that it's 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 underserved by people who would, could other would, who don't realize yet how much this would benefit their lifestyle. There's a lot of people who are sort of endurance athletes. And even if they're just weekend endurance athletes, you know, people love to go cycling. People love to go for a run whatever they're whoever they are i i think that they're missing they're missing the opportunity of of putting stand-up paddling in sort of that repertoire of of outdoor exercise you know that really would that blends well with the lifestyle they already have they just they don't know it yet and so one of the challenges mm -hmm. is to is to try to introduce this sport to those people and say hey Hey buddy, this this is for you. You know, you should go out and give this a try because you'd mm -hmm. be surprised at just how much you're gonna like this. You just haven't tried it yet. And so, you know, to that extent, you know, the idea of getting in front of getting on television is 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 one of the is one way of doing that, right? That the the idea of marketing this to the masses in a way where we can just attract more people is is obviously key. And then uh, and then. The, the other strategy, which I know there's a lot of energy um, and a lot of discussion 
kind of happening already is the idea of of moving the sport into the olympics um mm-hmm. and what is and what does that look like do you have any idea kind of what the what the path would look like for getting stand-up paddle racing either distance racing or even technical racing into um into the olympic committee as an olympic sport like how would that work well, I think now with, you know, we've had a couple of years with, with the ISA games and, you know, um, they've created this, uh, you know, this event basically that, that started with surfing and really brought surfing around the world to kind of put it in front of mainstream, you know, for something like the Olympics. And now we've seen great interest with uh, surfing with the big possibilities of surfing becoming an Olympic sport, which back in the day was not even possible, but now with the new wave machines and stuff like that, it has a, uh, you know, a clear shot. Stand up paddling to me is a no brainer because you can do sprint racing or, you know, long distance or anything in a controlled environment, which they already have as far as for, you know, kayak racing or canoe racing. So that to me is easy, but I think the sport right now is still a little bit unorganized and is still going through a couple of growing pains to where the industry needs to kind of tighten up the belt a little bit where we all work together to help, you know, make it happen. And, and um, we're seeing, you know, it all over the world where now people are coming up with, you know, they have full on, you know, country teams like Australia we have one, you know, for U.S., um, you know, with USA of Surfing has put it all together. And, and uh, that's going through some growing pains, but in a positive way. I think, you know, now that the Olympics, we have the Pan American Games coming up, and that's kind of the intro, and then, and then hopefully the Olympics behind that. Um, but uh, I think it's just kind of getting everybody on the same page and helping that movement you know, together. Uh, we found in stand-up paddling, at least in my opinion, there seems to be a lot of um, event organizers, you know, people that are still thinking of just themselves in a way or how can they make the most out of the sport without giving back. And I think that separation creates a lot of organ- unorganization, which for the common sponsor corporate sponsor out there let's say like american express or maybe even like a phone company or coca-cola to put money in when they see two to three different world championships in a year going wow you know what do i put my money in i don't think i want to because they haven't gotten it straight and i think once you know team usa is getting rebuilt and stuff and reorganized and i think once we with the help of everybody the shops the event organizers um, possibly a, a better tour where everybody can be involved and, um, and, you know, getting the best athletes to represent their, com- their, their country. Pushing forward, I think, you know, it's stand-up paddling will definitely be the, in the Olympics. Um, but I see it more so as like a sprint racing format. And maybe down the line, they may do something in the waves. But quite honestly, I think it's going to be you know, first things first, it's going to be sprint racing when they're in lanes or something like that, which has already been done. Um, and I hope to see that in the ISA games where we're kind of pushing more of the Olympic criterion, you know, of what they're going to be doing. Because right now we're, we're doing a little of everything, which is great for the sport. But I think we also need to get our athletes ready for what's to come in the future. And, and um, I think 
once we get organized, we're going to see the sponsorship money come in. We're going to see the teams grow all over the world, and it's going to be very competitive because, as we know already, um, Europe is, is a powerhouse. Same with um, Australia. Japan has a lot of great riders. Same with South America, Brazil, um, and obviously the U.S. So, I mean, it's all over the world, and, and we're very stoked to be in that, you know, this great environment and lifestyle with stand-up paddling, but I think um, we've got still some building blocks to, to build up before it gets there. Do you, Chuck, do you think that there's some frustration on the athlete side about sort of um, the fact that it's a little bit uh, uncertain in terms of who who the world champion is each year? Do you think there's a need in this sport to have a world champion, like a definitive world champion where – Virtually every other sport, right? There's a um, you've got the you've got the year long of events, and then that builds that builds to a playoff, and then the playoffs kind of come down to the semifinals, and then you've got you know people basically competing to be the world champion, whether it's baseball, soccer, football. I mean, you name it. Even like you brought up the World Surf League. You know, there's a there's a world champion that's crowned every year at Pipeline. Um, stand up paddle doesn't really have that. Stand up paddle has things that look like that. But to your point, you know, there's 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 multiple world championships, and so there's no definitive world champion. And I feel like, you know, personally, I feel like for our sport to really be successful, we got to correct that. And and it may be hard to do because now we've got, you know, different people or different leagues, if you will, kind of going down their separate paths. Um, seems to me like there really needs to be some kind of governing body to pull all this stuff together for the health of the sport. And I mean, the point you made is a good one. I hadn't even thought about that, but yeah, sponsors are going to, sponsors are going to see right through this as well. And they're going to say, Hey, look, we, we want to sponsor the world championships of paddle racing or paddle surfing, whatever it may be. And, and they can't, they can't figure it out either. So, uh, I mean, yeah. on the yeah. athlete side, do you think the athletes are, are frustrated by this or do you think that they are, or were they indifferent? I think, you know what, yeah, you hit the nail on the head. I think right now, um, before I think the athletes were a little oblivious, we had uh, the World Surf League, or, the you know, the stand-up uh, tour uh, by Tristan, um, and he's been doing that for seven, eight years now, and that was kind of the only thing going, and that um, embraced uh, stand-up paddle surfing and then got into racing, which was, you know, kind of a cool that's what we need. But then we also had, you know, other tours at the same time and everyone wanted to kind of be the first to kind of create, you know, this platform. And, um, I think now we're seeing the athletes become a little bit more smarter because they've been racing for a long time, especially the young kids. And now they're figuring out, you know what, I'm tired of racing and doing the same thing and not getting paid my, you know, my um, basically winnings for competing all around the world. And then the rankings don't match because this guy that I beat three times is now current champion in Europe. And, you know, so I think they're fine. I think the athletes are starting to feel the frustration and it's a business because, you know, you train super hard, you go and race against the best in, in the world at, and you have to go to all these different events to kind of, pick and choose the right ones and they're not necessarily in the same tour so it becomes a lot of work and I think um, athletes are finally going you know what I'm sick and tired of it I really I really would like to just focus on one tour and there's been a lot of accounts where people have tried to do it but um, maybe for the wrong reasons and um, you know trying to make money on it and I think it's it's one of those things where the actual 
you almost need to get athletes together to look in the future and go, hey, you know, let's create one world tour where you pull, you know, two to three events in a in, or yeah, two events per country, and right. you make it very accessible and easy for any athlete to compete in. Um, at the same time, if you have your everything organized and put together with a, a really good platform of people, you know, working together. Then you get in, you know, with the airline sponsors, the hotel sponsors, the um, basically the uh, tourism board, where you can then go, okay, um, how can I make it easier for the athlete to get there? Um, so we do get the best in the world instead of going, it's only the top guys that get paid ninety thousand a year um, that are going to be there, and then suddenly, how can you call that a world title? Um, you know, you're looking at twenty guys that travel. Well, I know at least 40 guys that could be first uh, on any given day. And, and when it comes down to it, that's always been the discussion and the frustration where, like, how can you say you've got a world title when there's only 15 guys there? And when we go to PPG, you've got everybody there. So um, I think now, especially now, I think things have, have kind of come out, um, how would you say, under the microscope where, people are frustrated and we need to see change and the sport of stand-up paddling right now is at its plateau where there's a lot of inventory out there and we need to kind of bring it back and say hey you know what it's all about getting this sport in front of new people selling boards and bringing it back to where it was when we started and that's where everybody was together going to the same events competing for no money against the best of the best and at the end of the day, the sport was like, oh, man, I, I can't wait for the next And right now, it's, you've got false promises. And this isn't, I'm just saying the worst of the worst, where you're not getting paid to get there. And suddenly you look at all the money that your sponsors are paying you to get there. And, you know, you, you made no money back. And you're like, I'm training so hard. What am I doing it for? And so the athlete has to get smarter because it is a business. And now we're going to see sponsors or basically the board companies that pay a lot of money um, suddenly pull back and go, I can't afford to send my guy to this, you know, tour because it's not really a tour or it's kind of falling apart. And um, I need to get some more worth out of my team rider. And so that team rider now needs to either be doing clinics, working with shops, or be a lot smarter so they are an asset to the company. Because at the end of the day, it is a business. And being an athlete is – is unreal. I mean, very thankful that I've been able to do that, but you also have to put on a business hat and figure out how can I keep the money coming back in and, and that's where the events need to be structured better and having one world title, one world tour that's accessible by anybody. And that would, that would answer a lot of questions that would help sponsors kind of go, okay, we got one world tour and you know, everybody goes to it and you could just do six stops. That's it, real simple, and piggyback on some of the best events that are out there because, granted, there's some great events in Europe, Australia, obviously U.S., and even Hawaii to where you can easily make it happen, but it really takes everybody working together, and I think the athletes themselves have to come together um, and decide, okay, this is what's, what's going to make the sport better and make a better future, putting money on the table food on the table because we're selling boards out of it. We can't think, how can I make money to travel everywhere without looking at the first thing? And that was stand up paddling. We're selling boards. That's, that's what it's about. It's giving that lifestyle 
the new people out there that enjoy this healthy lifestyle. So we kind of have to think a little more business sense-wise when it comes to the athletes and being together versus trying to outdo each other. And, and I think we've seen a lot of, unfortunately, greed in, in certain you know instances and um, I think uneducated people taking the, uh, the lead when uh, we really need to kind of go, hey, where do we want to see the sport in 10 years? And um, how are we going to keep the boards still out there and, and that the sport is, you know, wanted to do, you know, that everybody still wants to buy a board, you know, in two or three years from now. Exactly. Exactly. Well, it's encouraging to hear you say that because honestly, because as a retailer and somebody, you know, who's I've been involved in this sport for, for a little while now. And, you know, I got to say at this at this stage, I'm, I'm getting a little bit nervous about kind of the future of the sport and, and particularly hear you say things like, hey, what if, you know, what if the big board manufacturers what if they start pulling their guys out or what if their sponsorship dollars just kind of start to dry up or just start to shrink a little bit and they're not sending people not sending their athletes to various events i mean those kinds of signs those are the early signs of a sport that's starting to it's starting to slow down it's starting to shrink versus taking an opportunity and and capitalizing on opportunities that exist today, you know, where we could, we could exactly. really kind of take the bull by the horns right now, knowing that things are disorganized and disorganized, knowing that we have a path to the Olympics that'll get us the amazing amounts of exposure, right? Amazing amounts of exposure, which is what everybody really wants mm-hmm. in one of the best ways possible. And, but the fact that, you know, the fact that, Right now, it looks like we could be possibly even moving backwards a little bit. I think that, you know, the, the opportunity to get this to get this right is is right now. And, uh, you know, I, I'm glad to know that there's guys like you out there that are thinking about this because honestly, everyone sees you as um, as, you know, an ambassador of the sport. Somebody's given back more than just about anybody. And I would encourage you to get together with, you know, your peers and really try to help help try to pull this thing back into shape before things get worse. And, um, and I, I'm not saying they're getting worse, but I'm just saying that this is an opportunity to move forward. If we're not moving forward, we're moving backward. And, and that, that definitely concerns me. So please Chuck <laughs> for all of us, please help us. Uh, <laughs> please help us to try to keep things moving forward. Cause honestly, just talking to you today, it's obvious that you've given this a lot of thought. I think you have a pretty clear idea of what the, the, the future direction looks like. So um, please let us know how we can help you get there. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, it is all about, you know, the young kids that really push the sport. And, you know, we have all the young kids have big families. And uh, when you get everybody stoked on the sport, you're looking at everybody, you know, grabbing boards and and being into it. And the minute the kids are burnt out on it or there's no feeder programs to give them a future, like, hey, I'm going to aspire to be in the Olympics. Or maybe there's programs that are, you know, input in place in college or, you know, for scholastic sports, a stand-up paddling might be a sport, um, especially if it does go to the Olympics. So there's no feeder programs. We're not thinking about the young kids that are nine years old that when Olympics do happen, they're going to be 16 or 18. Um, We need that to kind of happen. And we just basically need everybody to kind of work together. But I think it really starts with the athletes having a little better business sense of like, how are they making the money? And, and it really comes down to, you know, the board manufacturers making boards and the shops 
putting in their sweat equity with selling a good product and having the athletes there to, you know, help push it. But if the if we don't have a tour, um, we don't really have a future as far as pushing the young athletes, which then makes it just like another, hey, let's get a surfboard. Not not downgrading, you know, this great sport, but I think we need competition really spurs, um, you know, competitiveness all over the world and we've seen that in sports and that really pushes when it comes down to it it pushes business it pushes sponsorship it it's going to help sell boards it's um it's a lifestyle that he wants to be i mean you can go to nebraska now and you'll see a guy with a, a surfboard rack and a stand-up paddleboard and um you know that's the next closest thing to being at the ocean and um who would have ever thought that you know exactly. if we were looking at surfboards that that would have never happened and stand-up paddling is open um the world up especially in the water all over the world and um you know there's no sport like that right now and, and it's still going and you know thanks to great shops you know like yourself and many out there that are putting a lot of time into um you know promoting the sport and putting out great events and and really helping people get on the water and enjoy how much fun and how healthy this is um, you know, it, it's still going, but um, I think it's going to be a collaborated effort from everyone above to kind of go, you know what, we have to work together, otherwise we're on a sinking ship. And and not saying it's going to go that way at all right now, but it's um, I think as long as everybody's aware of it, um, we'll get the right people out there to kind of help build it up and, and bring it back to the excitement level and, and stoke and, and get it back on its feet. I, I think, um, you know, we've got a bright future. Uh, I think we're on the same page there for sure. Well, thanks, Chuck. I really appreciate you taking the time today. Um, this is this has been awesome. I think we covered a lot of really interesting topics. Um, and uh, if, if if there's anything else, anything else you want to talk about, or anything else you want to cover, if there are any kind of last points um, you want to make, otherwise we'll send you on your way. Um, maybe give us a quick heads up on where you're headed next sounds like you're in California now yeah. and and then um what, what's the rest of your summer plan look like I mean I know part of it obviously but I think you're headed to Maui here yeah. pretty soon right yeah so basically for me um I'm doing um you know I, I travel a ton and I've been really fortunate to be able to do a bunch of stand-up paddle surf and and race clinics everywhere and it's given me a better insight on on how the sport works and and a, you know, a, a bird's eye view of, of how the business is and, and, you know, how we all get paid. So for me, I'm very fortunate to uh, be able to do that uh, a lot more this year. And at the same time, um, you know, going to Maui to put some hard work and energy into training for Molokai because traveling so much makes it pretty hard to train. So I'm putting some time aside to really get into that, which should be a lot of fun this year. And, um, and then after that, uh, going to go visit you uh, for your great race, uh, which is going to be exciting, you know, in August. And um, so just staying healthy and, and super stoked on the sport and very thankful for, you know, my sponsor, Nash, and um, everyone else involved, uh, you know, in the waves and, um, you know, GoPro that uh, allows me this, you know, to kind of create a, a great lifestyle and, and uh, it's all about being healthy. Awesome. Sounds good. All right. Well, thanks again, pal. Have a great rest of your day. Thank you, too, and uh, see you guys on the water. All right, Sounds good. See you, see you. Bye. Take care. Bye.